So today will be different. As I put the mic on, this might be worthless because uh, normally I, I have a lot of notes and I'm going to be very uh, explicit as to what I want to say. Last time we were together on Romans 8, um, I tried to make the passage as simple as possible. Most of you are going to walk away today saying I've tried to make the passage as difficult as possible. But um, I have a difficult passage next week. This week, so here's my struggle. I look at Romans 10 and I'm like, oh, clear as day, not a problem, let's move on. Problem is, how do I make that what's clear as day in my mind to you? Uh, and so, Lord willing, that's, that's uh, where we're going today. Uh, it's going to be a little scatterbrained. I'm going to, last week, or last time we were together, um, we looked at, you know, eternity past, protology, and we looked at, you know, heaven, eschatology, and we said that those things act as anchors to uh, bind the saint's soul to comfort, right? Um, Paul last week, you know, ends up in his passage where the question is like, well, if all this is true of Israel, why is there such a small, why do we have a remnant theology? And the question we're looking at today is if we have a remnant theology, that is if only some of Israel will be saved, um, but then Paul's going to say all Israel is going to be saved in 11, which I get to talk about next week. Um, how, do, how do we reconcile that? So what we're looking at today in Romans 9.30 through 10.21 is a little excursion that Paul takes to try to answer that question. What, what's the deal with why are there relatively few uh, Jewish believers and why are the Gentiles responding so well? Why is this possible the Gentiles? Uh, yeah, how does he describe that? So that's what we'll be looking at. Um, so last time we looked at eternity past, or eternity past and eternity future, um, and then we did break it up and look at, uh, you know, the order of, order of salvation a little bit. Um, today we're going to focus more broadly. Last time we focused on, you know, the order of salvation, which was this green stuff. We're going to look at, like, all of redemptive history today, and I'm going to fail miserably, I'm sure, at some point, but I want you to try sticking with me. Um, I think it's important uh, when we look at passages like Romans 10 and Romans 11, if we just jump in there and try to like figure it out and, you know, yeah, look at the Old Testament passages that Paul's quoting and try to figure out what's going on there, that's helpful, that's essential, that's the work of good Bible study. Absolutely. You need to know what the terms mean. You need to know theological concepts. Um, but I think if we can get a feel for the warp and woof of covenant structure, covenant history, how God deals with his people in past, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, what is Israel, what's the law, what's its purpose, all those kinds of answers. If we can get all like a handle on that, then you'll get to Romans 10 and you'll be like, oh, that's what's going on. Now, here's the rub. How do I get you there? I'm not sure. And that's been my struggle this week. Earlier in the week as I was preparing, I was like, piece of cake. This is going to be easy. Great. Um, so as you guys follow me today, it's it's going to be a little uh, different, um, but Lord willing, we'll get there. I got three goals. One, introduce you to Professor Klein's submarine. Some of you guys have been here before. You know I've handed this worksheet out two or three times. I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit today, okay? Um, and I do that um, because for me, that was like, uh, you know, I Professor Meredith G. Klein was professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, and uh, he was hard. I got a C in his Pentateuch class. It was difficult. Um, I wasn't a good student, but I'll be citing people who are good students. Um, but but after, uh, through that class, seminary really opened up to me. And I was like, wow, I'm starting to get it. Things make sense. 
Um, and I, I hope to share that experience with you. And if I fail, well, so be it. Um, secondly, I hope to share with you guys sort of the, the key terms that are in this passage, big key terms. And lastly, we're going to look at how our confessions and how our tradition has interpreted the law in some ways. Okay. And I think if we do those three things, we'll be prepared to grab the passage and then we'll run through the passage pretty quick. Okay. All right. So, uh, starting with this, sometimes we've called it, uh, Klein's submarine. Professor Klein, every class would end up here. We would always end up here. And he'd be drawing this thing and, you know, uh, so here we have eternity past, we have eternity future. Um, this is, you know, what he would call the upper register. The upper register is basically God and his heavenly host, uh, existing forever. Uh, perhaps in the language of Pastor Tim's sermon last week on Hebrews 4, this is God entering into his Sabbath rest. Uh, it is, you know, the heavenly realm. And the goal is, is that God calls us to that place. And so we know that God, at the beginning of creation, he makes man and woman, places them in Eden, right? And the stipulations, the relationship that God has with Adam and Eve in the garden is a covenant of works, the day wherein you eat of that fruit, you will die. So the principle that we see in Eden, and anytime I have a box here, we're looking at theocracy. Uh, this is supposed to be a box. I guess I should make it a box. Um, the principle is theocracy. That is, God rules over his people. And the principles involved there might look very different than they look here or here. And we'll talk about what all this is in a second. Um, so the principle in the covenant of works is, do this and you will live. The day wherein you violate the commands, you will die. You will surely die. And we know, of course, that's what happens, right? So there's creation, there's fall right here. Now, immediately, we know that God institutes another covenant, that covenant that his son took upon himself, the covenant of redemption, okay, that's in the history past. But for us, we're talking about the covenant of grace. How does God, why does history continue, Right? He says, surely we will die. And Adam and Eve realize there is something funky. They're naked. There's, you know, God's coming in the cool of the day or God's coming in his wrath on that day is how I take that passage. Um, things are different, right? Uh, creation is not what it once was. They're kicked out of the garden. They go east. And so there's this fall, but simultaneously there's the promise, right? The, the proto-euangelion, the, the early preaching of the gospel, which is, hey, God's going to send a warrior. That warrior is going to come from you, Eve. He's going to crush the serpent's head, although it will hurt his heel. Okay, That savior will come. And so what I want you to see with this green underlining here is this green underline is the covenant of grace. So the green underline represents God. That was much better. Uh, this is the covenant of grace. And we see that the covenant of grace exists from after the fall all the way into right here, which is the last day, right? And, yeah, whatever, our entrance in the kingdom, of course, is, is a gracious covenant. And we see this, this covenant, you know, in its earliest form with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we see Abraham come along. And a couple things to note about Abraham. Somebody mentioned this a while back in Bible study. Um, with Abraham, we notice the nature of the covenant, right? Abraham, uh, Genesis 15, 
Um, we, we have that whole issue of the, you know, the tearing into the sacrifice. And uh, it's a one-way covenant, right? God himself marches through the torn-up beasts, right? Normally, in those kinds of covenant ceremonies, what would happen is the king, let's say, and the vassal would walk through it. Both parties of the covenant would walk through and thereby say, if I fail to meet the terms of this covenant, my body should be rendered as that body. But Abraham does not march through there, okay? God takes upon himself the obligation to keep the terms of the covenant, and he takes upon himself, if the covenant's broken, I will bear the burden of suffering, the wrath of breaking it. And of course, we know that's what happens. So this is a covenant that is a one-way street. God will be gracious to you because he's going to be gracious to you. Okay, That's the principle of the Abrahamic work. That is Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant of grace. Okay, Now, don't lose it. I'm saying this is the... If anybody in all of human history has been saved... This green line describes it. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, anybody that's in the, you know, Hebrews 11 hall of fame, hall of faith. Uh, these people all enter the kingdom by grace. There is no other way to enter the kingdom by grace. But Paul does talk hypothetically about another way of entering the kingdom of God. We've seen it in early chapters of Roman, Romans and we see that that's the work that the Lord Jesus as the second Adam picks up for himself. Jesus comes and he fulfills the terms of the covenant that Adam failed to keep in Eden. Okay? Covenant of works. And so what's the covenant of works for Christ? He gives, he gifts to us as a covenant of grace to us. Now, this brings us to Israel and this is where Paul is interacting a lot. Okay? Now, so this covenant, you know, covenant of grace, Established at post-fall, uh, more clearly under Abraham, <coughs> most clearly, of course, the post-resurrected Christ. Um, the covenant of grace is 435 years before this, okay? Before we get to Israel. And what I want you to see in the, the basic argument I'm going to uphold today is that just as this red line, I didn't tell you guys, this red line represents the covenant of works, or we could say the works principle, okay? There is a principle of works here. Okay? There's a works principle in the, in the garden, right? In the garden of Eden. That is, day wherein you eat thereof, you die. You obey. Your entrance into eschatological glory into, you know, enjoying the presence of God forever and serving him perfectly is dependent on your works. And we know that there's a monkey wrench thrown into that whole, you know, uh, glorifying God business based on our own works. We're going to see that principle active in Israel for something. Okay? Now, one of the problems uh, when people who've rejected dispensationalism, the idea that, well, you're saved by works, Israel really was saved by works, and then you, you get to the Reformed theology and there's like the covenant of grace. There's the unity of the covenant of grace. Sometimes when people who've chucked off dispensationalism, when they see this idea that I'm going to present to you, what they see is more dispensationalism. But listen to what I'm saying and not what you think you're hearing. Okay? Or I could be wrong and you could be right and that's fine. Um, but uh, when we get to Israel, that works principle is reintroduced. Okay? 
And that works principle focuses on a typological basis. Think about the law of God. When God gives the Ten Commandments, he says, you know, if you obey your father and mother, what's going to happen for you? It'll go well with you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. There's going to be blessings. And so we see, you know, of course, here there's blessings and curses. There's blessings and curses with same thing. There's blessings and curses. Uh, sorry, I'm getting excited. I don't have enough time. Um, so we see the blessings is, you know, you'll be blessed in your going in. You'll be blessed in your going out. And then, you know, you get to Deuteronomy 28, and, you know, the curses are pretty intense, right? So this is that blessing and curse based on obedience. Now, what I'm not saying here is that any Israelite was ever saved by their works. That is not what I'm saying, okay? I'm saying what Moses says. You will be blessed in that land, right? Uh, you know, uh, what was it? I just mentioned it in the fifth commandment. The idea of if, if you obey your parents, life will be good for you and long in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So it's a typological covenant of works. That is, it's a type. Now the question is, what is the type pointing to? Okay? The type is going to point towards, uh, blessings in the land and this Israel being a picture of what heaven is like. Okay? And I've probably lost half you. So let me just unpack this for you. What was life like in Eden? It was, it was a, it was the kingdom of sorts. We saw that there was a garden sanctuary. There's a hill. Hills often in ancient Near Eastern texts are associated with places of worship. Yeah. Adam and Eve walked with God. Walked with God. So they're with God. It's like heaven. Uh, some have made the argument that's a garden sanctuary. It, it is a worship site, okay? God is there with his people. Hey, isn't that like our goal? That's the Emmanuel promise, God being with his people. We look to that and we know that in the New Covenant, of course, God is with his people and you're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. But this is certainly a temple, okay? What makes Israel special in their worship in the Old Testament? There's all kinds of funky religions going on, but what's funky about their religion? They have the tent of God, right? They have a tent. They have the tabernacle. They have uh, a temple. And of course, the tabernacle and the temple refer to what? God is present with his people. God is pleased to be in their midst. Okay? So, uh, God is with them. Now, God is with them in kind of a scary way, right? You only get to go into the temple once a year, and that's if you're the high priest, and they got a rope around your waist, supposedly, and if you, you screw up, they pull you out, and, you know, oh, let's get the next guy because you violated the law. What I'm saying here is this is supposed to be a picture and a type of heaven. This is what life is like for God with his people, okay? It's where you live and work and your whole existence is under the authority of God, okay? He is your God, you are his people, you obey his laws and commands. And because, of course, God is your God, and we are his people, the expectations are that holiness is complete. It's perfect. It's perpetual. And so when you fail in your holiness... You go and you look at all those passages in the Old Testament that we think are pretty gruesome, right? 
One lies with a man the way would one lie with a woman? Put him to death. Adultery? Put him to death. Disobey your dad? Put him to death. Why? Is that what life is like in this place? Is there any sin in heaven? Will God permit? Oh, just try harder next time. It'll be all right. No. The expectation is law. Really, this is the standard. You did not meet it. Therefore, you are, uh, you know, anathema. We'll go with that one. Yeah. Um, so, I know this is a lot to dump on you at one time, but um, in terms of national Israel enjoying this showcase of what God is like and what God is like with his people, uh, that's, that's their goal. They're to showcase you know, what heaven on earth is like. But the works principle has a problem, and it's not the problem with God's law, it's not the problem with the principle. It's the problem with the people. Okay? The problem is, we look at Israel and we see, you know, oh, well, they, they want, they want a king, they go with Saul, yeah, okay, that, and then God has David, and David's like the real king, right? And David, of course, is the architectonic king, like he is the, the stamp from which you want, the die from which you want to make all your kings for Israel. The best they're going to get in terms of Israel. And Solomon's pretty good for a little while. But they all fail. You know, we think about King David, the man after God's own heart, and he is a wicked sinner. You take God's commandments and you unpack all of them and you go, wow, David broke them all. Israel as a type of heaven, as a picture of what heaven should be, fails. And we're going to see that by its very nature, by its very design, that's its goal. Okay? So when Paul's talking about the law, this is what he's talking about. And what I need you guys to see is that this covenant of grace is not superseded by the law. That is, the law being given to Israel as a covenant of works, as a type of what it would look like for God's people to exist in perfect holiness on earth. Um, and by the way, this is basically what they call the republication doctrine. Okay, This is not... Famous among some, but I hope to prove to you that at least some of our uh, divines in the Westminster Confession were fans of this doctrine. And I think it makes sense out of the passages we're going to be looking at today. Okay, um, So, this covenant of works principle being superimposed on Israel is not saying that anybody's ever saved by works. That's not the point. Okay, The point of this is to drive these guys to say, uncle. We can't, even for this typological thing, uh, we can't uh, fulfill the law, all right? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, now, it's interesting here. We talked about all those things that might make us uncomfortable as believers when we talk to our unbelieving friends, you know, all, all the punishments for sin. It's interesting to note, and this is just an aside of an aside of an aside, um, it's interesting to note that in the church... When we see sexual sin, 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, a man has his father's wife. Paul doesn't go right back here and say, take him out and stone him. What does Paul say? He says, kick him out of the church. Okay. So this is not theocracyville right after this point. Okay. Uh, and of course, we're going to, we're going to get here what the point is here. Of course, it's the cross. Um, 
After the resurrection, the church's powers are ministerial and declarative. The church's powers have no civil function, okay? Outside whereof, you know, what the, our confession says is the, uh, you know, the general equity thereof. That is the general principles we could try to apply. Um, and that's always open to interpretation. Who knows what that means? Okay. Um, that wasn't helpful. All right. <laughs> so. That's just sort of giving us a flavor for where I'm going to be plotting what we're doing in our passage, okay? The goal is always to bring us to glory. Now, another thing that's going on here is this little line on the bottom is there's a non-redemptive covenant, okay? There's a covenant going on called the covenant of grace. Uh, whoopsie. Ha, <laughs> uh, Thank you. Okay. And we're going to see that what's going on here is God is going to be pulling, you know, God is pulling out his elect from the four corners of the earth by the preaching of the gospel. And we're going to see that some folks are coming from this field. And we're going to see that some folks are coming from this field. And Paul's big argument here in Romans 9.30 through 10.31 is, why is it that these are the people with the promises, the covenants? It's Father Abraham. Moses and Abraham were buddies. There's, uh, why is it that these people that the whole of covenant history has been working up to, why are these people like a resurrected Messiah? Hmm, not interested. Why, why is that the result? Did God somehow fail? Is, is God like, is he impotent? Is there something wrong with his law? Is there, what's going on? Oh, but these guys who've never heard of Abraham don't care about Moses. They're responding in faith. This apocalypse of faith has come, and they're like, wow, what's going on here? So that's what we're looking at today. Uh, before we jump in the passage, I want to throw a crud. Um, before we jump in the passage, I want to just talk about some key terms and concepts real quick, okay? All right. Yes? Do you? There's been a revival. I need to be more of a, a yeah, sorry, I don't have any more. 22 is always the number I used to use. I guess I need to like... How many of you don't have handouts? One, two, three, four. Okay, so I'm going to... I need to be more of an optimist. We're going to go for 32 next time. Okay, my apologies. Um, with that said, the biblical principle of sharing could be enacted, and it might be good for all of us. You might get to know somebody you didn't know before. Okay, um... Wasn't that a nice way to escape culpability? Um, all right. Key concepts. Go ahead and look at your uh, page. It says Romans 9, 31, 10, 21. Um, so th these ideas that we're interacting with, there's been a lot of scholarship in, in Pastor and uh, Kevin, if you guys want to touch. It's been a long time since I've studied this in detail, so there's probably some factual. It's pretty broad, I'm sure, uh, but that's okay. You guys can help out. Um, but in general, the thumbnail sketch will work. Um, this idea of righteousness, what is righteousness, has been a huge scholarly debate for the past 40 years. I mean, you could take it back further, but, um, and here's, here's basically what's going on here. Um, the Hebrew is Zedekah and the Greek is Dikaiosune, which really doesn't matter, but, um, now you're all impressed. Uh, the ancient church and Reformation, when they talk about these concepts, the concept of righteousness, um, they took this as referring to one's status of a judicial recognition, okay? 
So righteousness for them is going to be conformity to a standard. And maybe it would be helpful for you uh, to think about, you know, Westminster Shorter Catechism number 14. What is sin? Sin is a want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. You're righteous if you conform to a standard, okay? Both the early church and Reformation folks buy into that. There's, it's in reference to a standard. How you achieve that standard or how you receive that standard is different, and we'll see that. But um, for the ancient church, the majority held it as an infusion of righteousness. That is, you gain conformity to the... Because both the ancient church and the Reformation church are dealing with the issue of, yes, there's a standard, however, we're screwed up, right? And so how do you solve that screwed upness? That's the question. For the ancient church, the majority answer appears to be, we achieve this standard, God, you know, accepts us as righteous on the basis of God injecting grace into us. And by receiving that grace, we then become righteous. So in your little notes, uh, you know, for the first one, uh, you know, so for me in the ancient church, righteousness is your status based on what you do with God's grace. Okay. So you appropriate or you lay hold of God's grace. You know, in the Catholic version, you got seven sacraments. You use the sacraments. The sacraments are like medicinal qualities. And those medicinal qualities you use to become holy. You become holy by making you holy with God's help. It's like gas that gives your holiness machine and your holiness machine runs. And whoa, hey, the holiness machine's going. He's holy. Okay? That's how infusion works in those systems. Now, in other words, it's God making you righteous. God makes you righteous, okay? Objectively, you're made righteous by the medicinal grace that God gives you. All right. For us, for monergists, people who God believe that God alone is the actor or the worker, um, this would include Lutheran folks and Reformed folks, we'd say righteousness is your status based upon God's gift of Christ's righteous status to you by faith, okay? So uh, there's conformity to the standard, but the conformity that, ooh, I can't believe I'm doing this. Uh, yeah, wow, I just drew an image of Jesus. Um, all right, I try not to do that usually. Uh, Jesus keeps the law, conforms to the standard, and he says, this goes to you, my beloved, as you have faith in me. Okay? We receive it as a gift. God gifts to us the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? Um, so it's God reckoning you righteous in your little fill-in blank there. So those are the two basic, you know, in, in terms of Western theology, those are the choices. It's, is grace infused or is it imputed? We've said it's imputed, and hopefully you guys have seen through Romans, there's, you know, plenty. Romans 4-5 will probably take care of that. Um, moving on. Modern lexicographers and interpreters. Now, this is where lots of the debate is in New Testament studies today, and that is, isn't righteousness, when you look at the Hebrew, isn't it just like a relational term? Isn't it? Showing your relationship with God and showing God's relationship with you that he will not, that he's faithful. God is faithful to the terms of his covenant always. And, and we're supposed to reflect that. So let me unpack this a little bit. So supposedly, uh, you know, the Hebrews think of this as a relationship. And whether this idea is true or not gets imputed to the New Testament Greek usage of righteousness. So first they, they, they throw an idea out there. The Greeks are all talking about, uh, you know, legal courtroom stuff. Uh, you know, it's uh, God reckoning you righteous. That's what the Greeks mean. But the, the Hebrews didn't mean that. 
And because the Greek is dependent on the Hebrews, they take this idea that, in my, uh, my view, they're injecting into what righteousness is, and they're going to push that into the New Testament. Okay? Um, so what we end up with is this. Um, for these people that buy into this view, that relation, and I know this is really short and not helpful, um, when we talk about righteousness as purely a relational status, these guys throw out things like, well, God's law is keepable. You don't have to, it's not the perfect perpetual obedience to the standard that these guys are talking about. No. It's just being in covenant and relationship with God and, and enjoying God and, and trying to do nice things. And so they go down, you know, roads like social justice and go to your local PCUSA church and that's probably the view of righteousness they have and it has to do with your relationship with others and being nice and it's usually not related to like the Ten Commandments and objective, this is what you need to do. Um, so the problem, according to this third folk, is they say the, the issue that Paul's dealing with here is that Israel, the only issue, is Israel is too exclusive. Israel's all high on the fact that God spoke to them. Oh, God spoke to you and he didn't speak to them. Ah, right? So for them, the big issue of the new covenant is these guys have the door opened. Okay? So when you read folks that want to reduce righteousness to relationship issues, uh, they're going to say basically the issue is the door is open for the Gentiles. The Gentile mission is open, and that is the point of the gospel. Now, that's not helpful, and we'll see why in a little bit. Okay, other words uh, that you guys need to be familiar with is law. Um, for general interpretive options for what law means, it's it could be law, it could be principle, it could be referring to the first five books of Moses. Um, I'm going to be arguing that when Paul speaks about law, in most cases, Paul is referring to this world of red. Okay? So my argument is, and I'm stealing this from Lee Irons, um, and if you guys are interested in the righteousness question, if you got 130 bucks, he's got a great book out. Uh, I couldn't afford it. Probably wouldn't read it. Um, but um, if you're interested in those issues, it's uh, supposed to be groundbreaking and something that probably should have been written a long time ago. Um, law. Uh, is the works principle in the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we're talking about. And lo and behold, when Paul starts talking about law in this passage, where does he go? He goes to Leviticus 18.5, right? Do this and you will live. That's what Moses says, right? Um, and then the last term we're going to throw out there is end, uh, and we'll look at that in 10.4. Um, by the way, uh, you know, righteousness is, you know, pops up eight times in our passage today. Law pops up four times. And then end that we're going to see in verse four of chapter 10, uh, is, you know, it pops up once. But I think that if we can get, uh, what Paul's talking about by Christ is the end of the law for those who believe, I think that we'll be like, okay, I kind of see what's going on in this passage. Um, or I've just confused you guys and that's okay too. Um, yes, ma'am. Two last, I'm sorry, sure. So the two last blanks. So, you talk, so for much of modern biblical studies, righteousness is God's faithfulness plus our covenantal faithfulness. And I probably didn't establish that for you. Yeah, so if you could take the modern conception of righteousness and how people get into the kingdom, 
you'd boil it down, and what you'd end up with is, of course, there's all God's stuff, but uh, ultimately it comes down to our covenant faithfulness. Okay, our covenantal faithfulness. So us being faithful to God. Okay. Um, now they would, they got some, some outs there. They're like, uh, they'd say, well. Uh, it's not perfect perpetual obedience we're looking for. It's just like the general outline. And they would, they would argue that, oh, there were people in Israel that were, you know, fully observant Jews, kept the law. Okay? Um, did you have a question, Bob? Now, the other, the other part of that, boil that down to its weakest link, and righteousness is our faithfulness. Our faithfulness is what righteousness is on that conception. Okay? Okay, um, there's key passages. We'll get into the confession later because I don't have question, uh, time. Check this out. Um, let's go ahead and look at our passage. You guys have been wondering, right? Um, so here we go. Chapter 9, verse 30 of Romans. I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we'll just unpack that real quick. So on our conception of things, Jews are up here, right? Gentiles are down here. These are not the people of God. They haven't received the law, etc., and the promises. Um, so here we have Gentiles. Here we have Jews, right? Whether they you know, identify more with Abraham or after it's the coming of Moses. Uh, what if they all identify with Abraham? Anyhow, um, so what... So, Paul's big question here is, uh, how do we account for my ministry? I am the apostle to the Gentiles, and I love that, but I do wish I could like die and suffer redemptively for my people so that they could come to Christ too. Uh, interesting point there. Paul in chapter 9 is basically saying, yeah, I'm really, I want to be like Christ. I, I'd go to hell for it. That's kind of, you can't get more like Christ than that. Um, but uh, what shall we say then? These Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness did not have a, a standard, did not have God's covenant of works principle to pursue. They didn't, they didn't pursue that. And Paul's saying, these guys uh, didn't pursue that, but they're, they're getting heavenly glory. How is that? Hmm. But that Israel, these guys who have the promise, they have all the typology pointing forward to the kingdom to come, they have... Uh, all the typology pointing to Christ to come. These guys, when they see the Christ event come and they hear that you need to believe, they're like, I got better things to do. Why isn't that? Why is that, right? Israel, who pursued a law, by the way, it's interesting, Paul in a little bit, he's going to say that these guys are ignorant. These ignorant people who knew God's law far better than we ever will. Um, kind of curious there. Um, but we'll get to that. Uh, Israel pursues this law that would lead to righteousness, but they didn't succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Okay? 
In the covenant of grace, the operative theme always in all ages is the one united covenant of grace. That is, you enter the kingdom by faith. You enter the kingdom by faith in another who has kept that law for you and you receive his benefits imputed to you by faith. Paul's saying, yeah, when the 117 Romans, uh, you know, uh, righteousness is revealed from heaven for those who receive it by faith, that comes along, uh, these guys get it. They respond. They believe. These guys, not so much. But Paul says, hold on. I'm a Jew. Hold on. Those promises are still God for God's people. Okay? And so Paul says this, uh, verse 32. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written... Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Guys, that stone is a chunk of wood, actually, and it's a cross. Okay? The stumbling stone is Jesus. It's the same stumbling stone that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says that it's the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of a dead Messiah who rises from the dead, and you receive his benefits by faith. That's stupid foolishness to the Greeks and to the Jews. It's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. Now, going back to those guys who want to posit the idea of righteousness as nothing else than relationship, they do have some things right. They're right about the idea that the Jews were really full of themselves and they thought that they had an instant ticket to heaven because they're like, I look like Abraham. Right? I look like Abraham. I got a ticket. Lord. And he's like, no. No. The issue is faith. The issue is faith. You need to come to that Redeemer. Okay, Romans 10. 10 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Again, sort of reiterating his, his sentiments that he has in Romans 9. I, I wish that I could be cut off and cursed from Christ for the sake of my people if they would come, right? His desire is for them to be saved. Paul is not an anti Semite. And people who hold to Paul's position are not anti Semites. Okay? Uh, people who hold this view, they, well, you don't like the Jews. No, I'm saying that you need to repent and come to Christ by faith like anybody in all of God's redemptive history, whether Jew or Gentile. And that does not make me dislike Jews. It makes me love the Lord Jesus, the perfect Jew. Okay. So, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now again, uh, don't they have knowledge? These are Jews. These are people who, this is their ancestral heritage. They can look at their family tree. They've heard this preached forever. Moses has been preached everywhere. And Paul's saying, yeah, they're kind of ignorant. Okay, what are they ignorant of? They are ignorant of the revelation of faith. Okay, they're ignorant of what has been clear in type and shadow throughout all redemptive history that you need to come to the Redeemer, that there is one who will crush the serpent's head, that there is one who will walk through those torn up beasts, there is one who will bear your sins. And that was all in type and shadow throughout Israel, but when they see it in its fullest form, they're like, no, no. So the knowledge that they lack is the apocalypse of faith. It's the revelation of faith that you need to come to terms with that righteousness is yours, not by you but by another. So for being ignorant, verse 3, 
being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, God's righteousness is found in his son. There's two ways you can get that righteousness. You can do perfect, perpetual obedience, which we saw failed here. We saw it fail in David. We saw it fail in Solomon, the guy who's like the wisest guy, right? Like, hey, Lord, give me wisdom. Wouldn't that like put some gas in your tank to help you like be righteous? Solomon says, no. Yeah. Isn't that the reason why Moses wore the veil? Because his face was failing and it has a reference to the covenant? Yeah. The very nature of that covenant is fading in terms of its glory. In the new covenant, there's, yeah. All right. Um, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, uh, oh, I, you know, I skipped verse 4, didn't I? My apologies. Uh, that's pretty much all I want to talk to you about today. Okay, verse 4. <laughs> for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for anyone who believes. Now, this is interesting. What do we mean by the end? The Greek is telos, and telos is the idea. It could be like uh, end, like goal. It could be end, like termination, right? So dispensationalists are going to say, he's the end of the law. Law doesn't matter. We can do what we want. Just, you know, come raise your hand and everything's fine. That was mean. But um, the, uh, you know, the, the idea is that the law's done. No. So... I'm usually not a fan of this in, in you know, linguistics. They want to illegitimate totality transfer. And usually it's just a lazy way to say, I don't know. Um, what you end up doing is say, uh, it's often possible for people, well, it's, it's both. It's, you know, the end and it's, uh, you know, it's the goal and it's the terminus. It's both of those. Um, well, it is both of those. And let me describe why. Um, it's the, well, you want to know, I'm just going to read somebody smarter than me. Um, here we go. Telos means it is a fulfillment that terminates. Both aspects are present. The aspect of fulfillment and the aspect of termination. But it's a certain kind of termination. It's not just a termination of saying, okay, it's over. It's a termination that occurs by means of fulfillment. By being under the Mosaic law and fulfilling it in our place, both as to its precept and to its penalty, Christ wrought for us a perfect righteousness, a divine righteousness, which is imputed to our account as a gift and received by faith alone. So Christ is the end of the law in terms of he is the fulfillment. Okay. What we see here is failure. What we see is failure. What we see here is fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He actually keeps it and he brings it to an end. Now, that's not to say that the law doesn't have a place in our lives. As Reformed people, we've always said the law has a place in our lives. The third use of the law is the point where this is a guide for how we can show God our gratitude and live in holiness. Okay, um, Christ is the end of the law. Okay, For Moses writes about, this is verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. I'm not going to get into there. Basically, Paul's quoting an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 30 and also Leviticus 18. And he's establishing the principle that the full flowering of these issues related to the law are found in Christ, who's the end of the law. He's the fulfillment, okay? And he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from dead, you will be saved. So we've got these principles here. You've got the works principle and you've got grace or faith. 
And Paul's saying that uh, by believing all that would have been yours, should you have been obedient to the works principle, is yours, received by faith. Okay, And it's not this hard thing. The, the ascension of Christ and then the... Uh, the incarnation and the ascension of Christ take care of those things. We need to receive it by faith. Um, verse 10, For the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and saves. Is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I just want to point that out there. Everyone. Everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, and the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So the call is, call on the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed, the all obeyed the gospel. Israel. You know, prophetically, Paul is saying, Isaiah saw it. Not all Israel is Israel. Some don't have the name Jacob. Some have the name Esau. And they don't receive the Savior, the terminus of God's covenant of works. Okay? So, uh, Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed and what has he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not all heard? Indeed they have. For the voice has gone out into all the earth and to the ends of the world. But I ask, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me, and I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, verses 18 to 21, we're going to be looking at next week, along with chapter 11. And if you thought today was fast and hard to follow, next week will probably be worse. But I'll try to make it simple. Yeah, Chuck. I, I think one of the things that uh, when I talk to a friend of mine, and he's talking about the typology of the Old Testament. Right. Everybody understands the example, like the rock was a typology and so and so. But I think what people understand that Israel itself was a typology. That was the revelation that came to Paul that he didn't understand, that actually... You're not understanding that you're no longer in the purpose of the Old Testament of typology. We are now the true Israel, which is the spiritual Israel. Right. Yeah. And that's where we're going next week. Look at, you know, what is Israel? What is all Israel being saved? Yeah. And I won't give away, but yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we confess that not all things are equally clear, but we believe that uh, it is sufficient for what we should believe and how we ought to live. You do tell us, Lord, that uh, we should be diligent in our studying of the Scripture. And by the right use of means, we can grow in our understanding of it. But help us always to rejoice in not boasting in our understanding, but boasting in Christ, in the fact that faith is simple, that we could be those who say, whether he's this or that, I don't know. But what I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. So, Continue to give us that vision, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.